0: tonight to the book of ephesians and tonight we will finish chapter two and if you need a bible tonight um just raise your hand if you want to follow along well no you do want to follow along if you don't have a bible you should raise your hand and uh one will be brought right to you it's such a great system we'll take your picture and then we'll talk about you later you didn't bring your bible and no just kidding Hands are like Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be picking up in verse 11. Now thus far, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul has shared with us, first of all, who we were prior to our conversion, or our coming to Jesus Christ. And he told us that in that state, that we were dead, as good as dead spiritually separated from god that we were lost we were just meandering going upon the course of this world being led about by satan himself fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of our mind and he tells us that we were by nature the children of wrath we were in a position before god where we were destined to experience separation from him and and his wrath But then he goes on from there and he tells us who we are now that we are in Christ. Not a blanket salvation that covers the whole planet, but for those of us that have responded to the gift of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. He tells us that now we are alive. That we've been forgiven of all of our sins. He's cast them as far as the east is from the west and he doesn't remember them anymore. He tells us that we're seated positionally in Christ, in heavenly places. That we've been elevated from the place of God's wrath and God's forsaking to the place of God's ultimate favor and blessing. We're seated in Christ. And he tells us that we are saved, not by anything that we did or deserved or that came out of our lives, but that we're saved by God's grace By nothing more than our faith in Jesus Christ and even the faith that we have in Christ is something that comes from God that he gave to us. So he took us from death, separation and wrath and he gave us life, blessing and he seated us in heavenly places with Christ all by his grace. And then where we left off last week in verse 10, Paul went on to tell us that God has ordained a purpose for our lives on earth. That we're his poema, his poem, his artwork. That he's forming Christ Jesus within us and he's making something of beauty, an expression of himself. And we are the canvas or the clay that he is using to make that expression, to bring forth himself to a lost and dying world. We're being recreated in a way that will reflect Jesus Christ with our lives. And all of that is so that we can live our lives to serve the purposes that he has ordained. And there's an incredible contrast there between what he said in the first two verses when he said that we were slaves to Satan. That we formerly existed to be molded, crafted, and led by Satan himself. But now we're in a place where the purpose for our lives is to glorify and reflect Jesus Christ. And he finishes that verse there at the end of verse 10 by telling us, That we should walk in the purpose that God has planned for our lives. That if you want to realize the fullest potential for your life. If at the end of your days you want to look back over it. and, And see for yourself that you lived the fullest most fruitful life that you could have. Then your responsibility or your Destiny, if you would, to accomplish that is to give yourself completely to this one who gave himself completely for you. I think of the people in the Bible that are for us examples of such a life. People that gave themselves completely to the will of God for their lives. Last week I talked to you about the river, again, you know, jumping in to that Place where you are so resigned to God's will that you are no longer in control of where your life goes, but it is completely up to God. And the Bible is full of examples of people that did that, that gave their lives to God in such a way. And many of us, we often think that we have kind of done that, that, you know, because we read it or we see it or we heard it or we understand it, that that means we did it. But when we look at the lives of the people that did, Well, it causes me to question even for myself. Abraham, who jumped in the river and God said, I want you to leave your hometown, your father and your mother and your friends, everything that's familiar. And I want you to go to a land that I'm not even telling you where it is. Just go that way. And Abraham obeyed, not knowing where he was going or what would happen, just knowing that I want to serve this God, that I want his plan for my life no matter what it is. I think of Moses, a man who there for You know, 40 years on the backside of the desert. Settled in with a job. Settled in with a family. Having kind of his thing. He's 80 years old now. And God comes to him and he says, Listen, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And the interruption of God that came upon his life, this man that wanted to be surrendered, he fought a little bit. But he gave in. I think of young David. We're not told... That Samuel said to David, you're going to be king. We're just told that Samuel dumped a horn of oil on his head and said, basically, hey, God's got a plan for you. Good luck. But young David, a man who lived in the river, and yet you look at what happened to his life. We're following him on Sunday mornings. And the best life that any of us could ever live is that life that's resigned completely to what God wants for us. But I ask you the question, have you counted the cost? question throwing it out that's an addendum to last week's study but he's ordained a purpose for our lives and paul tells us that there in verse 10 but as we move on and pick up in verse 11 paul goes on to tell us the fourth and final thing that he's going to bring to our attention here in this chapter tonight and that is that not only is god preparing a place for us in his body a purpose for us to serve But He is also at the same time working in us, preparing us for a place. Regardless of what it is that God is going to use us to do on earth. And God wants to use us, that's His plan. But regardless of that, regardless of the circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in in our lives... Regardless of our maturity level and how long we've been walking with Christ and how much of Him we know and how much of Him we experience, regardless of that, regardless of our gifts, of our calling, of our ministry, of our ambitions, of our desires, or whatever else God might be doing in our lives or that might be going on in our lives, there is another far higher purpose that God has within our lives. Now, we often get trapped in the frame of mind of everything being in the here and now. We live on this earth, we traffic on this earth, we wake up and go to sleep on it, we work in it, we pay our bills in it, and and, and somehow we get consumed in this whole thing that everything is about this life and this time. And we bring God into that equation, and rightfully so, because He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is with us, He is leading us, and all of that is true. But Christian, I'm going to tell you tonight that that is not what life is all about. The here and now, the things of this world. We often lose sight of the world that's yet to come. Of the eternal life that goes beyond what takes place on this planet in the finiteness of this cosmos, this present world. The truth is that God is much more concerned with our eternal destiny than he is with our present comfort. And his work within our lives, therefore, is twofold. And Paul is bringing this to us. That first of all, he has something for us to do on planet earth. And therefore, he is preparing that place for us in his service here on earth. But also, there is a place prepared for us in heaven, and he is working in us, preparing us for that place. So his work within us consists of what he's doing in us and with us now, but it also concerns what he is preparing us for in the ages that are to come. And both of those things are present within our lives. So regardless of what he's doing presently, he's working something greater and weightier that's more eternal, that has to do with eternity. And as Paul concludes this chapter, he deals with the second and most important ingredient in God's work within our lives. And that is that he is preparing us For a place that is heaven. Now, in verses 11 through 19, that next chunk there of scripture, he takes a moment to somewhat explain how Christ bridges the gap between Jews as an entity and Gentiles as an entity. Because, biblically speaking, that's a big difference. I mean, if you were a Jew, a Gentile to you was nothing more than fuel that would keep hell hot. That's how they esteem Gentiles. And Gentiles, historically, even to the present day, have a certain mindset, attitude, if you would, prejudice against Jews. And we're all familiar with anti-Semitism and how broad and and, and how deep that can run in, in the sentiment of people that are not Jewish, you know. And so this divide, this ripped rift between Jews and Gentiles, and now Paul is going to explain how Jesus Christ bridges the gap between the two, and he's taking us somewhere, because he's going to finish the chapter by explaining why it's important. But in verse 19, he sums up, and he's, or I'm sorry, verse 11, he says, Wherefore, remember, that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, Who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, that is the Jews, in the flesh made by hands. That at that time, prior to your coming to Christ, prior to your salvation experience, you were without Christ, being aliens, or strangers, or foreigners, the same word, from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he already told us this. He's just recapping what he's told us in the first four verses already. But listen to what he says in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He said, you were aliens and strangers from the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of promise, the things that were to their favor and their blessing were foreign to you. You were outside of it, without God, without hope. You were in the world. But now, he says, in Christ, he's given us those things, those those things that were sometimes afar off, are now made near because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, You know, you can kind of just read over that verse and and take it contextually and see where Paul's going with it, but think about what this means for one minute, what he's just said. Because this verse unlocks for you and I, Gentiles primarily, those that are in Christ now, what this does is that this gives us right and claim to every promise that God made to Israel in the Old Testament. He says that we were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and from the covenants of promise. That meant we had no stake in anything that God promised Israel. But now, he says, in Christ, we who once were afar off are made nigh, meaning that we now have access to everything that God promised Israel in the Old Testament. Now that is rich when you really look at what God promised to Israel in the Old Testament. I mean, you just read Deuteronomy chapter 28, a a chapter that highlights some of the promises that God gave to Israel. He said that they would be blessed in the city and in the field, that their offspring would be blessed, that he would bless their ground and their cattle, he would bless their flocks. And, And you know, you bring all of that into the present day. You know, we typically, for the most part, don't have flocks and herds and farms and fields and lands but you translate it into the the tokens of our commerce and the things that affect us, and it's the same promise, it's just different semantics. He says you'll be blessed when you come in and when you go out. He says your enemies will be smitten before your eyes. Your storehouses will be full. That you will be the head and not the tail. You will be in front and never behind. Those are the things that God says He's going to do for those people that follow after Him. And we were once strangers to those covenants, to those promises, but in Christ, because of the blood of Christ, those things are appropriated to us. They belong to us. You consider the things that are written in Isaiah chapter 54. God says to his people, Fear not, for you shall not be ashamed. Isn't it incredible if you really stop and think about the things that we fear, the things that make us stay awake at night, At the root of many of it is that fear that we're going to be ashamed. That somehow people might figure out what we really are. you know, Or or that God is ultimately who knows what we really are and that he's just waiting for that opportunity for us to trip up and then he's going to expose us. But God said, no, fear not, because you're not going to be ashamed. In verse 8, he said, with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on thee. In verse 10, he said, For the mountains shall depart, and the hills will be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. In verse 13, he said, Great shall be the peace of thy children. In verse 14, he said, In righteousness shalt thou be established, and shalt be far from oppression. For you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. In verse 17, he says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shalt thou condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. And and, and that's just a handful of what God promised to his people, to Israel. And we were once strangers to it, but we've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. We've been brought into the commonwealth. We've been given access to the riches, the treasuries of the promises and the graces of God. He goes on in verse 14, he says, For he is our peace, who hath made both ones, speaking of the Jew and the Gentile, and he hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for, or in order to make in himself of two, the Jew and the Gentile, one new man and so making peace. That it, Paul is telling us that it was through his death, through the tearing of his flesh, the spilling of his blood, the commandments or the law that separated between the Jew and the Gentile, the ordinances that made the Jew holy and the Gentile profane, that those things were torn away and done away in Christ, and thus through the tearing of his flesh, the two can be made one. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said that the veil in the temple that which separated the most holy place from the common area or the, you know, the standard holy place. That curtain that was 18 inches thick and 50 feet high and, you know, however long it was. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, that that curtain, that 18 inch thick curtain was torn from top to bottom. Signifying that access was being granted. That no longer was there a separation between that which was considered holy And that which was considered profane, because through the blood of Christ, all men were given access to Jesus. And Paul is saying here that through the tearing of his flesh, the spilling of his blood, the two entities, the Jew and the Gentile, have not been integrated, but they've been separated and made into something completely new. They're a totally new entity in and of themselves. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. The Apostle Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond or slave or free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That because somebody was a Jew and they came to know Jesus Christ, and they are therefore considered a completed Jew, that that doesn't elevate them to a higher level of spirituality than someone who is a Gentile that comes to Jesus Christ. That in Christ we are one, and there is no separation between us. We've been brought into this fold that is the people of God. And in verse 16 he says, "...and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross..." having slain the enmity thereby, or the hatred that was between the two. And he came and he preached peace to you, the Gentiles, he saying, which were afar off, and to them, the Jews, that were near. For through him, that is through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access by one spirit unto the Father. And now, after Parenthetically summing up this Integration or this elevation of Jew and Gentile Into this new body He brings us to where he's going with that He says now therefore In light of who you are Brought into this covenant Brought into this relationship with God Given the peace of God The promises of God You are no more strangers and foreigners But you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, in this verse, Paul introduces a new concept in our thinking concerning God's dealings with His people or His work within our lives. He calls his people the household of God, or the building of God, if you would. In verse 20, he continues the illustration. He says, "...and you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets." Now, listen, the apostles and the prophets, we're not built upon them necessarily in a literal or even a figurative sense. But rather, we're built upon the message that they conveyed, that they communicated. You remember at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus said to his disciples, he said, Who do men say that I am? And they gave their answers the best that they could. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. Some say you're that prophet, you know. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter piped up and he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, right, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, has revealed this to you. And then Jesus said this. He said, upon this rock, this foundation, this stable, established statement that you've made, Peter. I will build my church. It wasn't upon Peter. The church wasn't built upon Peter. But it was built upon the message that Peter brought that day of Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2. That three minute sermon wherein he elevated and glorified, magnified, brought forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people were brought into God's salvation, into God's kingdom. It wasn't upon Peter himself, but rather it was upon the message that Peter preached, which was Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Lamb of God who died for the sin of the world. That is the foundation that we are built upon as a church. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he spilled his blood to take our place in judgment so that we could be saved and set free. He says, we're fellow citizens with the saints and that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then listen, he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, in Bible times, when a group of people were going to set forth to build a structure. They were going to construct a building or a temple or something that was beyond the magnitude of just a, a residence or a dwelling place. They wouldn't call a supply shop or go to Home Depot or Lowe's and, you know, order a bunch of two by fours and sheetrock and, you know, number two screws and, and all the rest. They didn't do things that way. The structures in those days were built out of solid stone or bricks, if you would. It was, uh, you know, they were established upon things more than the cheap building materials that we use today. And so the stones they would use in these structures would often be quarried right out of, you know, you know, rock places, places where they would quarry stones, and they would be cut to specific measurements, and then they would be erected and built in, in the, you know, the proper fashion according to the details and the drawings. But, the first thing that would happen when they would erect these buildings is that they would set the chief cornerstone. And the chief cornerstone was the most important element in the whole building process because it became the standard or the measurement whereby everything else was drawn. All of the lines, both horizontal and vertical, all of the measurements and the dimensions, everything was pulled off of the chief cornerstone. And so therefore, it was extremely critical that the chief cornerstone be right because it became the guide and the standard for the entire structure. By the way, this is the very reason what I'm saying to you right now why we at Calvary Chapel teach the Bible verse by verse. People say, well, why do you teach the Bible verse by verse? Or sometimes they say, we're glad you teach the Bible verse by verse and they think that it's just kind of like you know, our spin or our brand or, you know, we couldn't think of good topics for series and stuff. And so we, you know, we teach verse by verse because we... No, 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 that's not why. We do it because that's the biblical way of doing it. In Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet Isaiah said, or the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah said these words. Listen carefully, I think it'll come up on the screen. But it says, whom shall he, speaking of God, teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine and then he answers he says them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast now if you are a bible student or you are familiar with new testament lingo and you've read some of the expressions that are used throughout the new testament to talk about the bible then you understand what he's talking about here Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. The milk of the word. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 talked about those that are babies in Christ that use milk. The writer of Hebrews talks about those that use the milk of the word and that aren't mature enough in their Christian walk to be able to understand the meat of the word. And so if you understand that, then you know what he's talking about here when he says, who shall he make to know knowledge and to understand doctrine? He says, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. They're no longer just taking in the milk of the word, but they're given to the meat of the word. He says, for precept, and listen very carefully, verse 10, he says, for precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept Line upon line, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. Now the Hebrew word for precept that he uses there in verse 10, it's the Hebrew word tsav, T-S-A-V. And in English we would translate that word point. And so he says it is to be point by point, and then he says it is to be line by line. The Hebrew word for line is the word kav, Q-A-V. And what it means in English is line. So what you have is you have something that's being laid out point by point and line by line. What is it? He goes on, verse 11. He says, for with stammering lips and another tongue will I speak to this people. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. They didn't listen. But verse 13, he tells us the answer. He ties it together. He says, but the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And then he says that they might go and fall backward and be broken. And that, of course, ties into what he said when it says that they would not hear. If you don't hear, then it doesn't help. That's the point. But he tells us that the word of the Lord, and, and stay with me, he says the word of the Lord was unto them point by point and line by line, line by line, point by point. That that's how it was delivered, that that's how it's going to cause people to understand knowledge, to perceive doctrine, and it's going to bear fruit. It will bring rest, it's the rest we're with, it will bring the weary to rest. But understand that all of those are construction terms. See, when they would build the structure, they would take the cornerstone and in the corner of that cornerstone, the outside corner, they would nail a nail into the ground and that would be a kav or or, I'm sorry, a tzav, a point, a precept, if you would. A point would be made right at that corner and then a string line would be drawn off, running perfectly alongside the chief cornerstone and it would be measured to a certain point specific to the plan. And a line would be drawn. So a point would translate into a line. And at the proper destination, a point would then again be made. The kav would be, I'm sorry, I'm going to screw up these Hebrew words. You know, the tzav or whatever it was. The point would then I'm going to go to English now, no more Hebrew. You know, the point would be nailed into the ground. And then from that point, a line would then be drawn off it again to another point at another given destination where another point would be made. And so line would be laid upon line, point would be made upon point, and you would begin to see a structure being formed. Once the base level was completed, they would then draw from the cornerstone and they would go vertical, they would start to build upward, and again, from a point, a line would be brought. And what God is saying is that, listen, if you want your life to be built the right way, If you want your Christian understanding, if you want your doctrine to be right, then the way that you're to do that is to take the Word of God line by line and point by point, measured off of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and let your life be built the right way. And that's why we teach the Bible line upon line and point by point. Not because it's our method or our hook or our way or whatever. It's because, hey, listen, the Bible was written and received line upon line, precept upon precept. And therefore, it should be read and taught and understood and lived line upon line and precept by precept. Everything being measured against the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. He's the standard. He's the guide. He's the one where, that we look at and examine and say, yes, it's right. That line's up. That point is in line. It's in the right place. It's the guide wherewith when someone says something that's out in left field, like you should never be sick. If you are sick, then you don't have faith. But you look at Jesus Christ and you don't hear those words coming from Him. You don't see those lines being drawn up in the blueprint of Scripture and you say something's not right. You measure it off of the chief cornerstone. And your life can be built the right way. And He says that those that hear will experience rest, refreshing and stability. And so Paul is taking this illustration, and now he's applying it to our lives. He says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets there in verse 20. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then in verse 21, he tells us how it relates to us. He says, in whom, and that's you and I, all the building... Fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. He says uh, there in verse 22, in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. He says that you essentially are the building materials that God is using to construct a dwelling place for Himself. That's what the temple was. In the Old Testament, it was a place where God's presence would reside. Where God's peace would be experienced. Where God's word would be magnified. And he says that we, Paul says this throughout the New Testament, that we are the temple of God. The place where his spirit is to reside. Where his presence is to reside. And therefore, we are being built. We are being fitted, fitly framed, Paul uses this language. A holy temple, a holy habitation unto the Lord. Now listen. What he's telling us is that what God is doing in our lives, part of what God is doing in our lives right now, is that he is constructing us as a house for him to live in. And if you can understand this and understand what Paul's saying, it will greatly help you to understand and interpret the things that are going on within your lives. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter writes this. Listen carefully. He says, You also... As living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Listen, Paul says, you are the temple of God, being fitted a holy habitation for him. Peter says, you are living stones. put into the construction of this temple. When the temple was constructed in Jerusalem, under the architecture of King David and under the direction of King Solomon in the first days of those first kings, when the temple was, was being built there in Israel, it was done in a most interesting way. 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 17 says this. It says that the king commanded them to quarry large stones costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple now the foundation of that temple the very foundation that was laid by david and by solomon in those days that foundation is still there today and i've seen it some of those costly stones that the bible talks about are still there in their place and they are impressive some of those stones are the size of a tractor trailer you know Trailer, you know, the big trailers that you pass on the highway that scare the daylights out of you when you're driving or they whip past you or whatever. You know, some of the stones are that large. And when you see them, the way they're sitting there, and, and you look at how fitly compacted they are placed there, it, it's impressive. You look at it and you say, that, that's incredible. They didn't have cranes. They didn't have, you know, hydraulics and the types of things that we use to set these things. How do they do that, you know? And it may impress you, it may not, but if you realize how it was done, it's very impressive. Because, you know, we think of modern technology, everything's cut with lasers and with, you know, if if things fit right, we we don't marvel at it today because of the technology that we have. But if you understand and realize what had to be done in order for those stones to fit so tightly the way they do. I mean, we're talking so tight that you can't put a knife blade between the, the stones, you know, they're so tightly fit with one another how did they do that first kings chapter 6 verse 7 says this and the temple when it was being built was built with stone listen finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built That means 100% of the work in preparing these stones for their final destination was completed in the quarry before the stones were brought to the temple mount. And by the time they were brought to their final destination, there was no work that was left to be done upon these stones. There was not allowed to be heard the sound of a chisel. Or, or the grinding of a grinding stone, or of any of those things that would make adjustments or or, or or cause these things to be fitted properly once they were brought to the temple mount. It was to be constructed in almost absolute silence, in great uh, you know, reverence and, and, and all the rest. Peter says that you and I are living stones. Paul says that we're being built a holy habitation, a residence, a dwelling place for Almighty God. And what that means concerning our lives now here on earth is that you and I essentially are in the quarry. That's where we are as living stones right now, being prepared, a holy habitation. We're in the quarry. Notice again in verse 21, after Christ is established as the chief cornerstone, Uh, There, it says, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord. That means that the building blocks for God's temple are being fitted. There's adjustments that are being made. Measurements that are being established and work that's being done upon the stones in God's temple. Preparing them for the place that they will ultimately be fitted for assembly. Now, a quarried stone that they used in the temple in the Old Testament has physical attributes and dimensions. They would use tools and chisels and hammers and whatever else they used in those days to cut the stones. But living stones, what the Bible says you and I are, we have spiritual dimensions. And so, therefore, the work that God is doing within our lives is not physical. He's not saying, you know what, your arm is just not right. I don't like your arm. I'm not using it and cut it off, you know, or something. It's not like that. The adjustments and the tuning that God works within our lives are spiritual things, invisible things. Our attitudes, our actions and our reactions to the things that people do and the things that people say to us. Our responses, the way we respond to stress and the way we respond to, you know, trials, tribulations, the way we respond to annoyances and interruptions. Personality traits and trends, things that, you know, that we attribute to our nationality or to our background or to just the way they are, things that aren't fitting, if you would, with the character and the nature of Christ. Habits that we hold on to, addictions, thought patterns, prejudices, essentially anything that isn't fitting with what the cornerstone has prescribed. And we have an example, we see Jesus. And anything that God sees that is in us or a part of us that doesn't fit, that doesn't line up with who He is, God is working in us now, in our lives, through our circumstances, through the things that we go through, to make us into those living stones that are fit for the place that He's prepared for us in heaven. So how does God do this? I mean, what's God's method? And, and we've all kind of felt it. Don't you ever feel like you're being ground? Like you're being cut, you know, like things are, are not right, that there's heavy machinery that's at work within your life, and, you know, it's indefinable and indescribable, but you know what's going on. What's God's method for shaping living stones? How does God do His work within our life? What does He use, what tools does He use to shape us and make us what we're to be? It's interesting to me, and when David first began to make the preparations for what would be Solomon's temple, it tells us in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2. Listen carefully to this. He says, So David commanded to gather the aliens, listen again, or that's the new King James, the King James says strangers, literally it means Gentiles. King David commanded to gather together the Gentiles who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut, Hewn stones to build the house of God. It's interesting to me that David used unbelievers. It was unbelievers that were used to hew the stones of God's physical temple, and oftentimes I have found that God likes to use unbelievers in the lives of living stones in order to make adjustments and shape our attitudes, actions, and character to be conformed into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. I see a million smirks half laugh. If you could see what I see right now, you would laugh because you all know where this is going. God uses unbelievers in the lives of his people to make adjustments to our character and our attitudes. People say, why do I have to be around these people? The people that I work with, you should hear the language that comes out of their mouth. You should hear the conversations that they have in the break room or not even in the break room, just the things that they say. Why does God have me constantly exposed to this persecution, to this, you know, this, this oppression? You know, it's just nothing but death I'm surrounded with. Why is God doing this in my life? I remember feeling that. Tom Leland, they called him the apprentice eater. And there I was, the first year apprentice, who, with all the ambition that God can pack into a heart, came onto the job. And I was going to learn, and Tom Leland, he had it in for me. And so everything I did was wrong, even if it was right. It had to be redone. Everything I said was wrong, no matter what it was. Everything I knew, he knew better, or knew more, or you know had to prove me wrong. And it didn't matter what I did. And, And there was this grinding that was going on between me and Tom Leland there on that job. And everything I did was wrong. I would bring my Bible into, you know, the break room or, you know, where we would eat lunch. And I would read my Bible during lunchtime. And he would tell me how, you know, what atonement really meant. And he would give me Bible studies, you know, this unbeliever, this man, this heathen man, you know, beyond anything. And he would tell me what the, and it used to grate upon me. And I would just endure it and I would smile. And being that young, zealous Christian, sometimes I would bring my guitar with me. And that was really weird, you know, because I would bring my big old guitar case onto this union construction job. And I'd be there in the break room. They'd all be eating lunch and I'd be playing worship songs, just strumming, learning the the things and everything. And he would just be beat red and he would just be yelling at me, screaming at me, cursing at me, you know, all these things. But I didn't care because I was a fool for Christ. That was my, I'm a fool for Christ. I don't care what he thinks, what he says. And I remember one day, you know, he was just getting on me. Just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And he was just really in front of everybody, just trying to embarrass me, trying to make a fool of me. And and it came to a point where there was a break in the conversation and he he had asked me something or something and everybody was looking at me to see how I was going to respond, what I was going to say. And I'd had it, you know. And I said... Someday you 're going to be my footstool that 's not the right thing to say don't ever say that, okay <laughs> he The vein that was already sticking out, I think it popped you know and and it was it was like a war zone because everybody thought, "Oh you know this whole thing you know. And I am thinking, why, God, why are you letting this happen? Why is this guy here? If it wasn't for him, I would like this. You know, it's terrible. But God revealed something to me through the presence of Tom Leland there on that job. You know what he revealed? That what I was doing, essentially, is that I was mistaking being a fool for Christ with being a jerk for Jesus. I thought, I'm just a fool for Christ and this whole thing. And God said, no, 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 you're a jerk. You know. But he used Tom Leland in my life to make that adjustment. He cut off a big chunk of what I thought was sanctified. But what God revealed is that it was nothing more than sanctified flesh. It was my carnal nature seeking to be known as something spiritual. And God used an alien, a Gentile, an unbeliever to do something in my life that needed to be done. God uses unbelievers in our lives to accomplish his purpose for us and with us. What's going on in your life with that coworker, With that boss who has it in for you that won't leave you alone? With that neighbor that is driving you crazy? He doesn't just use unbelievers in our lives. He also loves, this is another one, God loves to use this in his quarry. He loves to use other stones. See, sometimes because the stones had to fit so exacting, they had to be just right, the only way to achieve that final fit was to actually put the stones real close to each other and then rub them back and forth like this. You ever do that with your hands? It gets hot, you know, and dirty. You know, and because, because there's friction there. There's wear going on. There's a smoothing process. Rough edges are being cut down and, and, and chiseled in a sense. And sometimes God likes to use other stones or other believers, if you would, in our lives to shape us and to make us what we're to be. Now the Bible is crystal clear that we are to love one another, right? In the body of Christ, we are called to love one another. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one towards another. And he he gives us example after example, scripture after scripture of how we're to love one another. But yet sometimes, don't you find that it's not as easy as it sounds? To love someone else in the body of Christ. Isn't it true that there are certain people that just seem to grind on you? That grind on us that we say oh we see him coming we go "Oh no you say, yeah I'm married to one <laughs> pray for me you know I think of Jacob he first laid eyes on her he was in love immediately it was Rachel the woman of his dreams He finds out that she's legal in a sense, that he's allowed under God's will to marry this woman, and so he makes arrangements with her father, and he says, I'll serve you seven years for Rachel. And his father agrees, and it says that Jacob served, he waited seven years, his love for her was so great. By the way, that's real love, ladies. If he says, I love you so much, I can't wait, you say, no, no, that's not love. Real love will wait seven years, and it will seem like a couple of days. And seven years passed and the arrangements were made and the wedding, you know, happened and and, and I don't know how they did it in these days where, you know, this happened. But basically, Laban, the father of Rachel, said, you know, Rachel's older sister, Leah, things aren't looking so good for her. Because Leah, the Bible says, was tender-eyed. It was kind of the gracious way to say she wasn't much to look at. And so Laban said, I'm never going to get her married off, he says, I know what I'm going to do, so he squeezes Leah into Rachel's wedding dress, and then he puts the veil over her face, and I don't know if maybe he gave Jacob a little bit of wine, I don't know how Jacob didn't figure this out until the next morning, but the wedding happens, they go into the tent, they cons- consummate the agreement, you know, and all the rest, he comes out in the morning, and, and it just says, behold, it was Leah. That's how it says it. And behold, it was Leah. Now, if that's not a revelation, you're like, ah, you know. And so Jacob, the quintessential conniver, he goes up to Laban and he says, What have you done to me? How could you do this? And Laban just said, Ah, don't worry about it. We have a custom. We never marry off the younger one before the older one. You can have Rachel too. Just give me seven more years. And so Jacob says, all right, you know, and, and, and so, but he, he doesn't have to wait another seven years. He gets Rachel right at that time. But then the battle ensues, which is the very reason why we do not practice polygamy in our right minds. Because it's a constant war between Leah and Rachel. They're constantly getting at Jacob, you know, like, oh, you love her more. No, you love me more. And you just read it and you get this sense of of what was going on. And, And Leah always struggled because she knew inside that Jacob loved Rachel more. And Jacob was always in his mind thinking, it's Rachel. It's Rachel. She's the one. She's the one. She's the one I love. She's the one I'm supposed to be with. That's the one right there. But it's interesting to me, this woman that he was so infatuated with, that he was so sure that this was the one. They go through their lives, and in the process of time, they both pass on, they both go. And Jacob, who walks with God, grows in the things of God, is changed by God, he goes from Jacob to Israel. He goes to Egypt, he meets the Pharaoh, he prophesies over his sons, and in his last breaths, he says to his sons, he says, listen, sons, I want you to bury me in the cave of Machpelah next to Leah. She's the one. It was Leah. She was the one. The one for what? What, what was Leah? When you read through and you see the lineage of Jacob, and you see the lineage Of Jesus that would ultimately come from Jacob. It wasn't through the sons that were born to him from Rachel. But it was through Judah who was born to him from Leah. And what Jacob came to realize. Is that Leah was the one. That God ordained in my life. Listen carefully. To bring forth Jesus Christ. Could it be husband, wife. That that grinding stone. That's sitting next to you. That person that's a constant source of annoyance and grief. That you would do anything you could to just get away from. Could it be? I'm just asking you. Could it be? (laughs) That God has ordained that person in your life. Because it's through them that Jesus Christ is going to come forth in your life. The nature of Christ is going to be birthed. Through that grinding stone that's sitting next to you. Because God is using other stones. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, it says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. Remember that word, forbearing. And forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do you. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfection. Perfection. It is not uncommon for God to use other people in the body of Christ to smooth out your rough edges. And so therefore, God will sometimes purposely surround us with people that grate against us, that annoy us. Because it works Christ-likeness within us. It teaches us the nature of Jesus. I know in my own life, I can just list three things that God has done in me by using other Christians. Number one is that he'll reveal a spirit of competition. He'll expose areas of jealousy, envies. And he'll reveal arrogance, pride, and self-will. Why does God do these things? What's God's purpose for cutting and grinding and causing us to be annoyed by circumstances and situations and people? Two things and then we're finished. Number one is so that we'll grow. God wants us to grow. Look again with me at verse 21. He says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. God wants us to grow up. He doesn't want us to be infant Christians that are continually feeding upon the milk, that don't have any knowledge of the things of God, but he wants us to bring forth maturity and bring forth fruit and bring forth the likeness of Christ. And so He lets these things happen, these adjustments, these annoyances, these circumstances. The second thing, the second reason why God does this is so that we can experience His presence. Verse 22, He says, "...in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit." Now, the more that we grow, the more of Him that we experience, the more of His presence, the more of His person, the more of His nature, the more of His grace we understand. Our eyes are open to who He is. And His work within our lives is always motivated by His desire to fellowship and commune with us. And so He does these things in us. He makes these adjustments so that we'll experience more of Him. As we close, I just want to ask you the very personal question. What's grating against you tonight? What circumstance, what situation, what person perhaps... What is it that's grinding you? Is it the people that you work with? Maybe the woman that God gave you? Maybe those kids that are an expression of you, you know? God's using you to shape and refine you. Maybe an unpleasant circumstance. Listen, our natural tendency as humans is to get away from the things that annoy us, right? Especially us men, we want to fix things. That's our very nature. Like, I know whenever anything happens in my house, my immediate reaction is drop everything and fix it, you know. And, and I wish it was that easy, but I, I always try. I always just want the problem to go away. Whatever it is, just make it go away. And we're notorious for that. But listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a secret about the Christian life. If you have a problem in your life right now, whether it's a circumstance, a Tom Leland perhaps, or whether it's a marital issue, a a grinding in your household, or something going on within your family, listen, don't try to fix it. Because it could very well be that the very problem that you're trying to fix is the result of God trying to fix you, see? And if you try to fix what God has ordained to fix you, then he'll have to put you in another fix to fix the fix that you are trying to use to fix God's initial fix. And it gets really messy. I've been there, you know. So what's the secret? Here's the secret. Listen carefully. This is gold. Ready? The only way to get away from or to get out of something that is unpleasant or unwanted in the Christian life, the only way is to embrace it. It's the only way to get away from something. Anything else you do will lead to frustration and fatigue. I know it's getting late. I promised everybody I would finish on time tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm almost done. I'm wrapping up. Give me two or three minutes, you know. I met I, Georgia had a root canal, and so we had to go down to New York City um, because that's the only place we could find someone to do it, and uh, I had an hour and a half to kill, so I called a friend of mine who works for Nickelodeon. And he's a senior illustrator. He's incredibly talented. He's a brother in the Lord. And I called him and said, hey, are you free? You want to have lunch? I'm real close by. And he said, yep. And he was, He said, meet me right here. And he was there. So he was, it just worked out, you know. And he was communicating with me his deep, 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 deep desire to get out of mtv's headquarters you know viacom and that whole atmosphere it's you know mostly predominantly homosexual the liberal mentality there it just eats away at him you know and he he just so hates what he has to endure in being in that environment and he was explaining to me his attempts to try to get out and this guy is so talented i mean beyond what what i can communicate with words and yet everything that he tries to do is just frustrated in its purpose. He said, I even met with a career counselor. And he said, I'm against that. I don't believe in that. And he said, but I did it. And I paid $1,200. And I, and I met with this career counselor. And I made a plan. And it was going to be step one, step two, step three. And, and I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning working on this stuff. I was staying up late. And I was doing all this stuff. And he said, it was coming to nothing. And he said, and you know what? He said, I got on the train. I was on the train one morning on the way into work. And he said, I was just exhausted. And he said, I put my head back in the seat. I was about to pull out my stuff to start working on it. And he just said, you know what? I give up. God, if you want me to be an illustrator for Nickelodeon for the rest of my life, then that's what I'm going to do. And I'll do it for your glory. And he said, ever since that day, he's had such incredible peace. Such an incredible tranquility, such an incredible contentment like he'd never known before. And he actually used the word to me. He said, when I just embraced the thing that I was trying to get away from. And I said, you've got it. That's the ticket in the Christian life. You embrace it. My wife has been such an incredible example of embracing to me. It's funny, when we first got married, I had problems that I don't need to get specific about, you know, but problems le- that all men basically face. Like on a Sunday afternoon, I wanted to sleep and watch football and do nothing, and she wanted to be outdoors and experiencing life. You know, that was her big thing. But do you know something? I never knew that. I never knew that that's what she wanted to do because she never, ever once, not one time ever, said, "Do you really? Are you really gonna? You're really gonna take a nap on this sunny summer afternoon right now? Really?" She never did that, not once. She just let me take the nap and whatever. And she she didn't like say, Well, I'm going out trying, you know, and this whole thing. I never knew about it. You know when I found out? About five years later, when I wanted to be outside and walking around and doing things outside and not sitting and, and, and then one day I heard a conversation that someone was having about whatever, and she said, Yeah, Nick used to drive me crazy. They want to do that. And I said, it Did? And I find out from time to time something else that I have done over the years of our marriage that drives her nuts, but I have never heard about it until long after it's gone from my life. And it's been such an incredible example to me of what it means to embrace the thing that bothers you. To not grate and and kick against it and try to fix it and get away from it and manipulate and all the rest and why are you like that, you know, this whole thing. And I've watched such an incredible peace per, just pervade her life for the whole time that I've known her. And the reason is because just whatever it is, God, that you want to do in my life, I embrace it. It's yours. It's fine. I'm not going to kick against it. I'm not going to complain. It's yours. And you know the fruit of it. If You know my wife. Just such incredible peace. If she's listening right now, I am so dead. You're going to find out in like five years that this really bothered her, you know. <laughs> Your living stones. God is more concerned with your eternal well-being than he is with your present comfort. Whatever it is that he's allowing in your life right now, just embrace it. Grab it and say, God, do your work within my life. I promise you this, you will grow, you will experience God's presence, and ultimately you will rejoice because what he creates is always, always good. Father, we thank you so much for your word tonight. Lord, you could have said this so much faster with someone else, but I just thank you so much for the truth of it, Lord. And I pray that, Lord, you would take the things that we've heard tonight and somehow you'd make sense of it in our minds individually and that you would apply it to the circumstances and situations that we are in and that we would grow, Lord. That we wouldn't resist and kick against what you're seeking to create. But that we would allow you to form us and shape us into that thing that you've already seen, that you've already known. To occupy that place in your eternal kingdom that you've prepared just for us. I pray tonight that you would give us a fresh vision over our lives. a Fresh vision of your mercy, of your goodness, of your grace a profound appreciation for your methods and ways. And I pray that you would give each one of us here the ability to take the difficulties in our lives and say, thank you. Thank you, Lord. You're working it for the good. Give us wisdom. I pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord. Strengthen our marriages. Strengthen our families. Strengthen our work ethics. Strengthen us with that might and in the inner man. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Let's all stand.